Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to the Gospel of Luke, the sixth chapter. We are continuing our study of the Apostles and looking at their lives, those who have been molded by the Master, and looking forward to this aspect. Do we have those slides back there? Okay. And we've come to the final group. Is we've talked about the various apostles. They're, they really are broken into three groups. Uh, Simon Peter is always named first. And you have that group with Simon Peter, uh, Andrew, James, and John. The second group is Philip, is always named first in that group. Philip, Nathaniel, uh, Thomas, and Matthew. And then we come to the last group. Uh, this group is really a group that for the most part is known for their obscurity, except for the last one. Judas Iscariot is always named last, and he's really the one remembered for his notoriety because he's the traitor. I do think it's interesting and and rather fitting that this evening we're considering uh, one from this group, Simon, who is known for his politics. On the Sunday before our midterm elections and as we are celebrating Veterans Day, uh, Simon was the one who was known for his political leanings. He was one who would be associated with taking up arms to defend the freedoms of the Jewish people. Last time we considered Matthew the tax collector. Matthew was considered a sinner, a traitor, even by his own Jewish countrymen. He wouldn't, you wouldn't really want him in your group. You definitely wouldn't want him in your employment, and yet Jesus chose him. Simon, the one we'll consider this evening, was on the other end of the spectrum from Matthew. Simon was really a first century revolutionary. While Matthew was hated by the Jews, Simon was hated by the Romans. And I find it interesting because while both of these men are identified by their past, God takes care of the past. He he takes care of our past so that it doesn't hurt us. We're accepted in the beloved, we're accepted by God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I want us to consider Simon this this evening. He really was a a political activist who turns apostle. If you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 6, we've looked at this before, but I think it's a good passage because it does highlight uh, the the point that we learn about Simon in the call of the disciples. In Luke chapter 6, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 12. Luke 6 verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, the one who also became a traitor. 
And again, we've looked at these verses, but as a reminder, it's interesting to me that the Lord spent all night in prayer before the selection. And the importance of prayer, if it's important for the God the Son, how important is it for us? And then that he calls disciples to him, and from that group of disciples, he chose these 12. Two of them are named Simon, two of them are named Judas. Those were popular names. Now what we find about Simon, Simon the Zealot, as it's mentioned here, is really the emphasis on his politics. We really know very little about this man other than that. This statement right here, he's called the Zealot. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 4 and Mark chapter 3 18, he's, he's referred to as Simon the Canaanite or the Canaanian. And it was probably not a reference to the land of Canaan or the village of Cana, but rather coming from the Hebrew and Aramaic word for zealous. Canaanian is the transliteration of the Aramaic word for zealot. And so he's identified by his politics. And really, that's about the only thing that we learn about him. Other than being a disciple, the only point of identification we have is his politics. We don't have any sermons he preached. We, we don't have any words that he spoke or any acts that he did individually. He's identified by his, his connection with a radical revolutionary party of his day. And so from a human perspective, Matthew and Simon should have been at odds with each other. That they should have hated each other and, and really not been together in the same group. And yet now we find them identified as apostles, followers of Jesus Christ. And yet the fact that he was a zealot gives us a little bit of a window into both this man's character and the, the political situation of the day and what he would have been involved in. The zealots seem to date back to the time of the Maccabees. And just kind of a quick abbreviated history to help us come up to what's taking place here. The conquest of Alexander the Great in around 325 BC led to the spread of Greek culture and language. Various rulers tried to, to unite their subjects and, and find something that would bring them together, combining the, the Greek uh, aspect of, of the culture uh, with other things. And in, in, in about 175 B.C., the Greek Hellenistic ruler named Antiochus IV came to power. Antiochus, known as Epiphanes. He persecuted the Jews for their faith. He sought to really wipe out Judaism completely. And so he, he wanted to Hellenize, make the Jews become Greeks, convert them to Greek culture. And to do this, he did several things. He prohibited the, the observation of the Sabbath day. He prohibited circumcision. He forced the Jews to eat foods that they considered ceremonially unclean. And on December 16th of 167 B.C., he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, desecrating the temple. Then he set up a, he erected a statue of Zeus in the temple. This became known as the abomination of desolation. And it's mentioned in Daniel eleven thirty one That they would take away the daily sacrifices and place there an abomination, is what Daniel says. So when all of this happens, an aged priest named Matthias 
and his five sons led the Jewish resistance. His oldest son, the first leader, was named Judas. He was called the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus. And he led the revolts that finally overthrew the Greek kings in December of 165 B.C., and the temple was recaptured. So that's why the name Judas was a very popular name in the first century, because of Judas Maccabeus and and understanding what they did and taking back the the temple. And that was no small task. The significance of that is still remembered today as the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights. It's commemorating the retaking of the temple by Judas Maccabeus. And so understanding that, it seems that the zealots came from that line. So when Rome conquered and the conquest that came about 100 years later, about 63 B.C., when Jerusalem was captured, now Rome was part of Palestine. And this was about the time of, of the birth of Christ. So when Christ was born, you've got Rome on the throne and the control for around 100 years. And I'm just kind of giving ballpark figures. But the, the zealots would have been the party that wanted to take their stand with Judas Maccabees. They wanted to stand against any group that would come, that would try to to take their their place. So recognizing this, we see the, the distinction that would take place. Now the historian Josephus describes four basic political parties that were active at the time of Christ. They, they took various Uh, lines of of approach to deal with this power that they wanted to get rid of. And and so we, we see, we have three of them named in Scripture. The Pharisees were the first ones. They were concerned for the Mosaic law. They wanted to protect the law, and so their attitude toward Rome was one of separation. They would remove themselves from politics. They, as far as possible, as much as they could, they just wanted to avoid Rome completely. They would ignore them unless they, they had to be involved. And they were primarily the scribes who studied the, the Bible, the Old Testament, the law, and interpreted it. They would interpret it according to the oral tradition. So their approach was to separate. In fact, the name Pharisee means separated ones. The second group were the Sadducees. These were the religious liberals of the day. They denied the supernatural. They rejected the belief in angels. They rejected the resurrection. And and so the way I always remember their position, that is why they were sad, you see. They rejected the resurrection. They are of all men most miserable. But they were religious liberals. They only accepted the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, of the Old Testament. And so I find it interesting when when they're asking Christ questions, in fact, if you remember, it was the Sadducees that asked about the woman who had had many husbands, and their question was, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so it wasn't a legitimate question to begin with, but when Christ answers, he answers from the Pentateuch. He goes to the very scripture that they accept, and he says, you err, because you don't know the Bible. They only had five books, and they didn't know that. But they had rejected the supernatural. 
And, and so understanding that, they were made up primarily of priests, but they were more the aristocratic group at that time. And the way they would cope with Rome was to accommodate or capitulate. They would go along to get along. And so this was their approach. And, and we have both of these groups mentioned in Scripture. The third group we don't find mentioned in Scripture, but they would have been around at that time, were the Essenes. They're not mentioned by name in the New Testament, but they're known by their early writings. They're described as ascetics, celibates. They, they tended to live in the desert. They devoted their lives to studying the law. And they're best known for the little communities they built with caves just west of the Dead Sea, the Qumran communities, where the Dead Sea scrolls were discovered in 1947. Those were the Essenes that would have been in that area. The way they coped was by isolation, to withdraw. And then the last group that was active at that time were the zealots. These were the extremists in every sense of the word. Their approach was opposition. And Simon was part of this group. So they were the resistance party. And there are several things that we, we can learn about them. Their beliefs were similar to those of the Pharisees. They held to a literal interpretation of the, the Scripture, of the Mosaic Law, of the, the Old Testament that they had. But unlike the Pharisees, they weren't willing to compromise for political reasons. While the, the Pharisees would try to be separate, there were points where they, they would go along. The, the zealots believed that it was wrong for anyone but God to rule over the Jews. So they traced their thinking back to the Maccabees. And, and while it's not inspired word of God, in the apocryphal book of First Maccabees, there's a statement that really sums up the spirit of the zealots. It says in, in, in 1 Maccabees 2.50, it says, Now therefore, my sons, be ye zealous for the law, and give your lives for the covenant of your fathers. And then it goes on to challenge them to remember what their fathers did, and in doing so, follow that, and they will get a great reward. So this was their mindset. They sought to follow the Mosaic Law to prevent the religion from being violated. It, it wasn't just some radical group. Their thinking was, this is Bible. And in looking at the Old Testament, for an example, they would go to Numbers 25. Because there we have the story of Israel as they went into sin and the wickedness. The people are, are, have gotten involved in false worship. God is judging them for that. The people are weeping before the tabernacle. And there is an Israelite who arrogantly proceeds to commit immorality in, in front of all that's going on. He takes this woman into his tent to commit immorality. And Phinehas, a grandson of Aaron, grabs a spear, runs into the tent, and kills the man and the woman to take away God's wrath and to stop the plague that God was judging Israel for their sins. The zealots viewed themselves like Phineas, that, that they were to have a holy zeal for the Lord. And that's actually what it says in Numbers 25, that God commends Phineas for his holy zeal for righteousness. 
Now, I'm giving you this background to help you understand the thinking of Simon. Because this would be where he would be. He would would see what he was doing as a holy zeal as cover for their crimes. Because their methods really were violent. They were militant. They were violent. Their goal was complete independence for, for, for Israel from Rome. And they would use violence as their tool. Plundering, looting, and, when necessary, murdering. They would stir up sedition. They would, they would cause rebellion. This would be their, their goal, to cause unrest at every opportunity possible. They were always ready to resist. And while we don't know what part Simon played in this, this would be where his sympathies would lie with these people. And I'm sure in their mind they were following that proud history of Judas Maccabees. He got rid of the Greeks. Their goal was to get rid of the Romans. They especially hated Roman taxation. And this is where they would be involved then in more of a guerrilla warfare. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, we we have the account of Gamaliel. And he reminds the Jews of Judas the Galilean. And it says he rose up in the day of the census and rebelled against the Roman census tax. And so, again, another Judas, Judas the Galilean, well, he's ref- when Gamaliel mentions that, he's referring back to about 4 A.D. when, when Judas raided a Roman armory and, and then got the weapons from that and led a revolt. And he really found widespread re- support among the Jewish people because they were already overtaxed. Now, remember when we talked about Matthew a couple of weeks ago, every layer would add their cut. And the last person who knew what they were going to have to pay in taxes was the the person paying them. And so it wouldn't be hard to get a tax rebellion if you had somebody who would lead it. That's what Judas the Galilean did. And when Rome crushed that party, crushed that rebellion, they killed Judas of Galilee in 6 AD and they crucified his sons. That's what Gamaliel was referring to in Acts chapter 5 verse 37. So at that point, then, the, the, the zealot party went underground. When the overthrow, the outward overthrow didn't work, they, this is where they worked more on the guerrilla warfare side. They became selective and secretive in their acts of terror. And they, they, they really formed a secret assassination party called the Sakari, the Dagger Men, because that was the symbol of their group, the dagger. They would carry these curved daggers hidden in the folds of their long flowing robes. So they could walk with their hand down in their robe and pull out a knife like this and keep it hidden in their robes and come up behind a Roman soldier or a politician or a tax collector and stab them in the back, thrusting the knife between the ribs, piercing the heart, pulling it out, hiding it again in their robes, and walking away as that person fell to the ground. And nobody would know what had happened other than this person had gotten killed. They were experts at thrusting that knife in and piercing the heart. These really were first century revolutionaries. Simon was a zealot. Now, Scripture tells us about one other individual who it would appear was also a zealot. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 18, we have an interesting statement here 
And while his name, Zealot, is not attached to it, when we read the description of what took place, it would appear that this person also was a well-known zealot. In John 18, look at verse 39. It says, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. What's interesting is the word robber there is not the ordinary word for a common thief. Barabbas was not a pickpocket or a snatch-and-run type of, of thief. The word is actually latest. The Greek word means to plunder. He plundered for political purposes. And in the process of doing that, he had killed someone. So it's very likely that Barabbas was also a zealot trying to stir up unrest, finding ways to to steal and to use that money, and maybe he killed a tax collector. But Barabbas was most likely a zealot. And isn't it interesting that at the death of Christ, the man whose name Bar, son of Abbas, is the one who takes the place of the true God the Son. Who do you want me to release? Your king or Bar Abbas, son of Abba? And they want Barabbas, a zealot. But understanding that we have another individual, the zealots really were looking for the Messiah. They wanted somebody who would restore the kingdom of Israel. And I'm sure that when Jesus came, it caught their attention, and it would have caught Simon's attention. So when Jesus proclaimed in in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, they picked up on the kingdom of God is here. Well, they're going to be part of that. They want to help. For Simon, as a Jew, this is going to flame his zeal. That burning enthusiasm, because he loved his country. He could lead a God and country rally. This was Simon. And understanding that, he loved liberty. But he became a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a disciple and then chosen as one of the twelve. And recognizing that political background, I think we we can make some applications that can be helpful for us. Number one, zeal when under God's direction is noble. Romans 12, verse 11 says, not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Zealous. Galatians 4, 18 says, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. You know, to die to self-interest is really a contradiction of terms. Zeal is a, is a passion it's a, it's a passion for, it's an energy for a recognized goal. The goal of the zealots was to overthrow Rome. But what we're going to see with Simon is God changes that as he becomes faithful and he finds the security in Christ. But I think it's also good for us to realize that commitment to a cause will not satisfy the longing of the heart. That's something that only Christ can do. And I think Simon realized that. As excited as he was to try to overthrow, he's learning from Christ. 
I think there are some things that we can apply from this. Is number one, rejoice that God saves people from all different backgrounds. From tax collector to political zealot. From one who sided with Rome to one who would be a revolutionary trying to overthrow Rome. You know, our God isn't satisfied with just being praised and glorified by one ethnic group. That's why he wasn't simply the king of the Jews. He's the savior of the world. Revelation 5, 9, speaking of the lamb, it says, You were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is not just the king of one group. People from all backgrounds, with all mindsets, are looking for answers. They're trying to find ways to cope. And so what we saw earlier, we find today as well. How do people deal with pain, injustice, oppression? Well, they tend to handle it differently. You know, some, some look to legislate, like the Pharisees. Well, develop a religious system, and if I get enough rituals and I keep these rituals, they give me comfort and protection and, and direction. That was the Pharisees. If you keep these rules, if you do these things, and that gave security. And there are times that people say, well, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Well, we're to apply God's Word. Some want the, the check boxes, but that leads to moralism and legalism. Others just kind of throw in the towel. Well, if you can't beat them, join them. Capitulate, negotiate, whatever. But that's, that was what the Sadducees did. Well, we'll just go along to get along. And then we'll see what's in it for us. And they ended up in the aristocratic category. Others retreat to isolation, run for the hills like the Essenes. Just shut down, pull back, escape, close off. And sometimes that's how people deal with problems. Satan wants to isolate us. We need a church family. We need others that will speak into our lives. And, and then there are others that rather than the flight, they go into the fight mode. The revolutionaries. The zealots. Matthew sought to pursue materialism. He was willing to give up his family, his honor, his country, his conscience, Simon immersed himself in a cause. He wanted to change the world. He probably would have been willing to stab Matthew in the back and disappear as that body fell into the street. And now they're brothers in Christ. United because they both have the same new master. You cannot serve God and money. And so Matthew gave up that money. But the zeal of Simon had to be re redirected. And understand, Christ will save sinners. No one is too dirty that he can't cleanse their sin. And we have to recognize that. Are we willing to be stigmatized by welcoming sinners? Are we willing to reach folks that might believe differently than we do or, or don't have our politics? You know, I, I realized I, in ministering in Maine, which was a very politically liberal area well there were conservative pockets where we were it tended to be po very politically liberal and I thought they don't need my politics they need my savior now I do think my politics are based in biblical principles starting with the total depravity of man <laughs> and therefore there's a reason for government to be a terror to those who will do evil and an encouragement to those who will do right 
But we have to introduce them to our Savior. I think it's important for us not only to recognize God saves people from all different backgrounds, but recognize what is it that excites us? What is it that motivates us? No one is truly apathetic. But what is it that that does excite us? So we saw this morning in the importance of work that Christ doesn't honor laziness in his service. Christ was zealous. His disciples were zealous. They were involved in something bigger than themselves. And that's why as I've purposely on multiple occasions backed up in Ephesians as we've come into our passage so that we understand what God is doing in this universe through the church. That we're part of something much bigger than us. That we're to live for the glory of God. You know, people are, are willing to die and give their lives for a cause. What is it that motivates us? You know, we, we can turn on our news and we can see people dying for other causes. One of the things that we honor on Veterans Day is those who have faithfully served and been willing to put their lives on the line. And I hope we can understand that. We may have problems with those who would kill innocent people and do it in a way that, that's simply trying to stir up unrest. But do we understand that there's an importance of committing to something bigger than our lives? That we would love Christ. I hope we get that because in, in Luke chapter 14 it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sister, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In 1 Corinthians 15, 31, it says, I, Paul says, I affirm by boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. In Matthew 16, 26, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Paul said, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, if, if we aren't careful, we can become so self-focused that we, we lose sight of the fact that there are, there are causes worth dying for. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Back in, in September, uh, several of us were in Washington, D.C. for the American Association of Christian Schools and Christian Colleges Conference, and, and we visited Arlington National Cemetery. That's, it's one of the places I, I like to go to in D.C., and I, I find every time I go that it, it brings a sobriety and a dignity. As you walk among those tombstones and realize these are people who died for the freedom that we have today to meet publicly. And then to be looking at names and dates and ages and realize these are people who were involved in something bigger than themselves. And those who have served that want to be buried there in Arlington. Arlington National Cemetery does 30 funerals a day on weekdays and seven on Saturdays. And we saw several as we were walking through that cemetery but as I mentioned, the, we have to remember that our ultimate battle is not a physical one, it's a spiritual battle. That we're involved in something bigger than ourselves. And, and it's not the politics, it's, it's a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities, power. Simon, Simon was willing to fight Rome when the real enemy was Satan. You know, we, we have an election, but the real answer for America is not Congress passing laws, it's changing lives. Now, we need good laws, 
And that's what Congress is supposed to do. God ordains government for that purpose. But we have to understand that it's not through the ballot box that we're going to see revival. It's through the Bible. And that we would be faithful in giving the word. That we would be faithful in, in then in recognizing that and then investing our lives in a cause that's greater than us. That we would understand that there's something greater and that true satisfaction only comes from Christ alone. In John chapter 6, if you're still in John, you can look back there, but in, this is shortly after feeding the 5,000 people. People are flocking to Christ at this point. And part of the reason for that is they're hoping for more free food. They, they want him to feed them. It's, you know, this is a great deal. He can feed all of us and there's, there's no cost to us. And for people who live day to day, that subservience of that day, that would be a great blessing. And at one point, he begins preaching a message that they find shocking and offensive. And if you look at John 6, verse 66... It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Some of that that had been followers said, we're out of here. In verse 67, then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? He turns to Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector and the others. And he says, are are you going to go away too? You know, that's not uncommon. When people don't like what they hear, they leave. They ignore, they tune out, or they walk out. And, and when the message causes us to examine our heart, there, there's a spiritual battle that takes place. We have to decide, am I going to submit to the Word of God? Am I going to apply it? Or am I going to go my own way and go in our preconceived ideas or protect a sinful lifestyle? And we see the answer in verse 68. Simon Peter the spokesman for the group. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Holy One of God. So we're not here for free food. You have the words of life. Simon the Zealot found the answer to the longing of his heart in Jesus Christ. He was a man who was willing to die for a cause. Now he's willing to live for Christ. He was a man who was seeking to change the world, but now he's advancing the word. He was one who wouldn't serve the government, but now he's bowing to the lordship of Jesus. He also heard that first sermon that Matthew did after being chosen that we we saw back in Luke chapter 6. And in verse 27 it says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Do you think that impacted a zealot? He could pinpoint his enemies. And Jesus said, love them. Pray for them. Do good to them. He had to change his military mindset to a missionary mindset. He had been living for an earthly kingdom. Now he's living and seeking a heavenly one. Simon gave his life to serve the Lord. The zealots gave their lives for an earthly kingdom that they sought to set up. What are we living for? You know, I can't help but wonder 
how different Simon the Zealot's life might have been if he hadn't followed Jesus. Because if you trace the, the history, the historical consequences of what the Zealots did, it, it plays out further. It was due to their constant resistance that, that finally fostered the, the Titus Vespasian to march from Rome to squelch this ongoing guerrilla warfare. He surrounded Jerusalem, cutting off supplies. But the zealots would not allow anybody in Jerusalem to no negotiate for surrender. In fact, they began killing fellow Jews who wanted to surrender and end the siege. No one was allowed to save their life by surrendering to the Rome. And finally, after a five-month siege, when Titus saw it's hopeless to try to starve them out, he destroyed the city. That was in 70 A.D. He sacked Rome. He massacred thousands and thousands of people. He enslaved many, many more. And the, the arch of Titus that we saw in Rome this summer shows them bringing the spoils of Jerusalem back to Rome. This was fomented by the zealots. The Romans celebrated the overthrow of Jerusalem with a series of coins that showed a woman weeping beneath a palm tree, the symbol of Judah. Jews were forced to divert their temple offerings to Rome as a Jewish tax for the temple of Jupiter. This was what came because of the rebellion of the zealots. Simon might have been part of that if he had not turned to Christ. That temple has never been rebuilt. From A.D. 70 to today, the Jews do not have the temple. The closest they can get to, to truly that temple location to pray is the western wall, the Wailing Wall. But there were other zealots. They fled. And if Simon hadn't changed his loyalty, maybe he would have ended up with them, with this view. Overlooking the Dead Sea, this is the view from Masada. Here's a model of that ancient palace. The zealots actually captured Masada at the beginning of the Jewish revolt. And toward the end of that revolt, many families fled to this rocky fortress, 1,400 feet above the western shore of the Dead Sea. Tradition says that the first fortified, it was first fortified by Judas Maccabees' brother, Jonathan. But at this, the time that Rome came to Masada. There were 967 people led by a man named Eliezer. They remained as, there as Rome surrounded this area and they built a siege wall. That, the red arrows show some of that rock structure that is still there to make sure nobody could escape from Masada. And when they arrived, they, they thought now they can get them, but again, the zealots would not surrender. They collected all their personal belongings together and burned them. And then ten men were chosen to kill every family and then kill themselves. And when Rome arrived, after building their ramp and coming up there, they found 960 people dead. Only two women and five children escaped death by hiding in a cave, and that's how we know the story. These were zealots. Simon had been a zealot. And yet he turned to Jesus Christ. It says in John 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people.
people did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name. That was Simon, an activist who came to Christ. He turned apostle. He was molded by the Master. He can change our lives when we are seeking our satisfaction in Christ alone. And while we don't know much about him personally, when we look at the historical context of what Scripture does tell us in these few windows of the zealots, we see that this was a zeal that God then used to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't die in Jerusalem with those who wouldn't surrender or on Masada. But those were his people before he came to Christ. The question for us is, are we zealous in serving Christ where he has placed us today? Let's pray together.